0: The Witching Hour with Aaron Mazza is a Mind Garden Media podcast in association with Screw You Tag Productions.
1: My name is Aaron Mazza, and this is The Witching Hour. Hi again, everyone. It's Aaron. I appreciate all the feedback I got on our last episode that featured. Part one of our conversation with Storm Fairy Wolf. And in this episode, you guessed it, here comes part two. I hope you guys enjoy it. And I sure hope I hear as much feedback on this episode as I did on the last. Enjoy. You (laughs) have your own lineage of fairy, the uh, Blue Road. You. How did that come into being? How long has it been around? I know I'm asking all these very, very broad questions. You
0: know, so I started teaching the fairy tradition um, sometime in 2002. I didn't have a name for my lineage at that point. I didn't really consider myself to have a separate lineage. But I started to get, because I was online, and even before I was teaching um, long distance, but I was online. I was writing about the tradition publicly. That, to some degree, put a big target on my back um, because there are, a good number of people, I would say, within the fairy initiates community that are very secretive about everything. And from my perspective, I don't think that's a healthy thing. I'm certainly a fan of initiatory secrets. I took an oath to keep certain things secret, and so I have. But I don't think it's appropriate to keep everything secret just for the sake of secrecy. I also feel that a lot of people keep certain things in the occult secret because it simply allows them to retain more power. If if they know a secret that somebody else does not, you know, it makes them seem cooler. Right. And we do get a lot of that ego driven dribble, you know, in the larger occult community and certainly in the fairy tradition as well. And I don't think any witchcraft tradition is totally free, you know, of this, but I never thought it was appropriate to keep everything secret, but the things that I was taught as secrets, I've kept secret, but everything else pretty, pretty much not. I, I will write about it publicly. But again, that puts me at odds, you know, with some people within our tradition. That's just kind of been a thing for me going forward was, you know, how do I be transparent in my behavior and how I'm dealing with students and all that and still honor, you know, this mystery and I feel like I found a really good way forward you know, with that. But your question was really about when did it become Blue Rose and, and what makes that a separate lineage? I want to say it was two, gosh, it's either 2007 or 2009. I think it's 2009. In 2009, um, I was presented with the Black Wand, which is a high honorific um, within certain lineages of the fairy tradition. And I was presented this by Anar, who is the current grandmaster of the fairy tradition, and Cora Anderson, who is one of the founders of fairy tradition. I actually worked with Anar and Cora for about a year, year and a half, um, getting ready for this ceremony in which I was to be honored as a master of the fairy tradition. And one of the bits of lore about the Black Wand is that you now are your own lineage holder. You know, you could actually make changes to the tradition if you decide it's necessary. You could start your own group, you know, not just a coven, but kind of branch off and do do your own thing if that's what you want to do. And it would still be considered fairy tradition. And so when I got the Black Wand, uh, again, it was a high honor. I'm still in awe that that was something that was presented to me. But when I did that, I decided that I was going to name my lineage. And I named it Blue Rose based on a few different things. But one of them was a vision that I had had of a blue rose that was shining above my head. And it was actually a symbol for my God soul, which people in other traditions might think of as their higher self. But in this vision, this blue rose, which seemed to be made of blue fire, it opened up and in the middle in the center was a particular God that I work with, often called the Blue God, Gianni Glass. That was such a powerful visionary experience for me. It always kind of stuck with me. And so I called my lineage blue rose to remind me of that vision, but also to draw in all those poetic threads that different cultures have related to the blue rose, you know, because it's the idea of the blue rose has been around forever. And it often represents that, which is just out of reach because blue roses don't exist in nature. So they represent the highest spiritual attainment. It's something that we're going for, but we're never actually going to reach it. Right. So it's kind of like our spiritual ideal. We're always working toward this particular ideal. It's it's a, a symbol of mystery. And, um, and so it really just spoke to me. So it would have been, you know, later in 2009 that I actually made the announcement that, you know, my lineage was now called blue rose. And again, this kind of is a tip of the hat to some other things. You know, the particular lineage that I was trained in was called Blood Rose. And Blood Rose was a coven um, that was basically the first teaching coven. It was a larger scale classroom style teaching coven that operated in the San Francisco area until the late eighties, early nineties when it broke up. And so the particular style of fairy tradition that I was trained with was definitely Blood Roseian, And the name Blood Rose actually came from um, a book that Victor had written, a book of poetry called Thorns of the Blood Rose, that was always a favorite of mine. And so it kind of drew in those elements as well.
1: A second ago, you mentioned books. I actually own a copy of Thorn of the Blood Rose myself, and it is amazing, but you have actually produced a book of poetry that is one of my prized tomes called Stars in the Earth. Mm-hmm. Like I mentioned in your introduction, you have a very long and rich bibliography. And the two books that always stood out to me and actually began my formal training studying the Blue Rose tradition was "Betwixt and Between," and your poetry book that I mentioned just a second ago is called "Stars in the Earth." And those are my two favorite books. Those are going Thank to be you. At the ends of this episode. It's two. Thank between. you and Stars in the Earth. Thank you. Yeah,
0: yes. Um, The Stars Within the Earth was actually my first book. And it was self published. And um, that was Winter Solstice of 2003 is when that one was released. I actually did it in one level as an homage to Victor's book, Thorns of the Blood Rose. It's actually the same number of pages. That just sort of happened. Um, But it's a collection, mostly of poetry. You know, Victor's book was totally poetry. Mine's mostly poetry. I have a couple of my art pieces in there in black and white. And then I have some actual spells like towards the end. Um, but for the most part, it's, it's poetry, but it can be used in spell work. A lot of it derives from my work in fairy tradition specifically. Um, so I'm really happy that you like that book. That was definitely a, a labor of love. And it was also about confronting my fear. You know, because I was putting a book out there for the very first time. But I'm also glad that you mentioned Betwixt and Between. That one was my first non-self-published book. So that that one was my first book with Llewellyn. And it really is a primer on the fairy tradition. And I will say it's the most complete book ever written on the fairy tradition. There's been a couple other things, you know, um, Thorn Coyle wrote Evolutionary Witchcraft. That definitely is a good book on the fairy tradition. And I mentioned Starhawks' The Spiral Dance. Hers is not specifically about fairy, but it definitely has a lot of fairy stuff in there. Um, but my book, Betwixt and Between, is really the first book that really looks hardcore at the history of the tradition and of the founders and working with a comprehensive methodology of working with the tradition for someone who is not an initiate of the tradition. That one was definitely a a labor of love. And then I will say, I'm just shameless plug. The next book after that is forbidden mysteries of fairy witchcraft. And that one kind of picks up where betwixt and between left off. And then it goes into more of the darker work, the shadow work. I talk about um, divine and spiritual possession, um, working with demons, even cursing. You know, these are all things that are kind of part and parcel of our tradition. And so I tackled those things along with some good fairy journeying to in, in the folkloric sense, drawing from the imagery of the old ballads like Thomas the Rhymer to give us kind of a framework. And then I have a couple other books that are coming out. So I definitely am trying to get a bunch out there. Because this is just my love. I love writing. I've, I've always loved being a writer. I always wanted to be a writer professionally. And so this is really joyful for me to be able to do and do it to earn a living. That's a really nice thing.
1: You have some new books coming out. And one book in particular that I personally am interested in, it's called The Satyr's Kiss. And yeah, or here to add another shameless plug to this episode. And because, <laughs> because it seems like it's very relevant, especially in this day and age. would like to accept. I hope so.
0: I hope it's relevant. I, I mean, it was relevant to me. And I will say that this was actually the first book that I ever wanted to write. It took me this long to actually make it happen so the satyr's kiss is specifically a book of um, modern witchcraft for queer men and however you identify if you identify as a man as a queer man then this book is for you i'm hoping that other people will also be able to get something out of it if nothing else then just maybe an idea that hey there's these other ways to work magic but one of the things that had always struck me Um, And this actually kind of goes back to an earlier question you'd asked about, like, the differences between fairy and Wicca. One of the things that always had struck me was um, this insistence that a gendered polarity was necessary for witchcraft and magic. Now, I want to say, I think that for a lot of people, that's a very powerful paradigm. You know, for a lot of heterosexual, specifically people, um, that's going to be a powerful paradigm because it affirms their identity and it affirms their place in the universe but for me as a gay man this insistence that you have to work boy girl boy girl and and that's not as insisted upon now but it still happens it still does get insisted upon in places especially like when i was becoming more aware of witchcraft groups and rituals with actual people um, we're talking late 80s, early 90s. There was still a lot of gender essentialism that was at play, you know, within the craft. And, you know, you can't do this unless you're a woman. That was fun being told that I couldn't actually be a witch because I'm not a woman. Um, or if you're standing in a circle, they would want you to alternate genders because that supposedly would help create the current of energy in the circle, man, woman, man, woman. So it was it was insisted. and And if you had a couple gay men in the circle, and they were standing together holding hands, um, they would try to insert a woman in between you to ensure that the energy is going to work properly. And it really is just a failure to see that magic is so much bigger than any one paradigm. The the gender paradigm, you know, if you're, if you're a cisgender heterosexual person, then I think the gender paradigm is going to work for you. Probably. Maybe. But... If you're anybody else, it's probably not going to speak to you directly. And so maybe you needed a, a different paradigm. And so one of the things that I had been writing about early on, I think going back to 2000, I was writing about um, moving beyond polarity. You know, why do we need to have gender polarity? We don't need it. You know, it if it works for you, that's awesome. But if it doesn't work for you, there's no reason you need to adhere to this particular paradigm. And so the Seder's Kiss really uses that as kind of its main jumping off point. And we explore other things besides polarity. You know, we can talk about resonance. You know, I I feel like as a gay man and I'm working magically with other gay men, there is a particular resonance, you know, that we feel that's different from what happens in a gendered polarity circle. Right. And it doesn't mean that it's better. It certainly doesn't mean that it's worse. It's just different. You know, we have a different type of magic that we can tap into. And so the Seder's Kiss is really exploring that and and hopefully giving people opportunities to maybe think of magic in a new way, kind of thinking outside of the polarity box. Um, It's also a book of sex magic. You know, I I really did not want to shy away from the sexual because I do feel that sexual energy is at the foundational core of witchcraft. I do think that ours is a religion of carnality and and primal power. And we need to honor that. And and sexuality is such a powerful and potent gift. And um, those of us who are sexual, right? Not everybody is, you know, Um, you know, some people are asexual and maybe they're not going to get as much out of my book because there is a lot of sexuality in there, but maybe they still could. You know, there's no reason that you have to make it sexual, you know, so I do give rituals and spells in that book, and I usually give them in two forms. Like I, I will say I do it in a red form, um, which is overt sexuality, and then a blue form, you know, which is either non-sexual or in which the implied sexuality is symbolic. Um, so I didn't want people to feel that they had to engage, you know, in sex magic if they didn't want to. But if you want to, here's some ways to do it. So I I talk about sex magic in a way that is not forcing gay men to adopt a heterosexual paradigm, because often we that's exactly what we're asked to do. You know, we're asked to, um, you know, as as a man, you know, I'm I'm asked to embrace the goddess in a particular way Mm -hmm. that maybe that's not appropriate for me. You know, I'm not saying don't embrace the goddess but what i'm saying is i'm not going to embrace the goddess as a lover you know i'm not going to have sex with my high priestess you know um and in some forms of modern witchcraft that still is required you know Um, i i know people who feel that they were coerced you know into having sex with their high priest or high priestess um because that was tradition Right. And and I mean, obviously, this happens in gay male circles as well. I've certainly experienced that myself, um, you know, so no one is safe from this. But I, I wanted to put forward the idea that sex is holy, sex is powerful. Um, it's fun. Um, it's also not necessary, you know, so I don't want even though I'm talking it up and I'm giving people an opportunity to work uh, um, in, a, in a queer sex, sex, magical way. Um, that's not required. So I was hoping to give people kind of a large, um, swath of opportunities to work in a way that actually affirms their soul. You know, so that to me, that's really the, the big work of, of the Satyr's kiss was to give people an opportunity to think beyond the polarity box and to maybe even reaffirm their sexuality, not just as something that feels good, you know, but is something also that is spiritual and that is powerful. You know gay sex can be spiritual and powerful and magical and we should have an opportunity to explore that in much the same way as our heterosexual brothers and sisters have you know through their polarity version, you know of the craft
1: yeah because i i found that like in a lot of the books that i had that i had read that it was almost given as almost kind of like a doctrine that there had to be a polar polarity of gender yeah
0: too. Right. And this really comes from hermeticism, you know, the, the you know, one of the, the principles, the principle of gender. And um, the, the thing is, it's mostly a misunderstanding of that, you know, because um, we have to understand that gender is not the same as sex. You know, gender is not a physical thing. You know, gender is an identity. You know, it's, it's something that's happening, you know, on one level in your brain. Right, it's how you identify. Um, it has nothing to do with you know your physical body, and and a lot of people still have a lot of problem with that. You know that that that, that sex and gender are different, and um, I think that for practitioners of the occult, um, we really need to be prepared to look beyond those um, those limitations that have been handed down. As traditional as they are, you know, um, we still should recognize that they are limiting us and maybe they're no longer serving us. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, We need to be able to move beyond that. And again, if it's your magic and that's where you feel the current of power, then I'm not saying you need to stop that. You know, what I am saying is if you don't feel it speaks to you, that's okay. Maybe there's a reason. And maybe there's something else you could look into and here's one opportunity you know you might you might find in the pages of that book something that is useful for you maybe you won't you know and maybe it's something else you'll find you know but i think that it's important that we all continue to explore and and to try to move beyond those limitations just because something is handed down as traditional does not mean that it's useful it doesn't necessarily mean that it's even good. There's plenty of really terrible ideas that are handed down as traditional, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and so, and uh, and some of that can be downright abusive. And um, we really need to take responsibility and and to look at that and say, you know what, maybe you know we can teach that that was part of our history, but we're not doing that anymore because we know better now. You know, right? When you know better, you should do better. Exactly. And so. That's, you know, that's, that's kind of my thing. So hopefully some people reading the Satyr's Kiss will get an idea of something that works better for them. And if that's the case, then I feel like I've been successful with it.
1: So it's almost kind of like uh, you don't even necessarily have to be part of the LGBTQIA community to get something out of the Seder's Kiss. It just teaches you to alter your perceptions and to not put spirit and not put magic inside of a box because it's traditional. Hopefully. Yeah, hopefully. I mean,
0: if nothing else, too, I think that, for example, I think if a straight person was to read The Seder's Kiss, I would hope that one of the immediate lessons that they might be able to get from it is an understanding of what queer people have had to do for pretty much forever, which is to make an internal translation in order to make something useful for themselves, and, and what I mean by that, the best example I can give is going to the movies and watching a rom com, right? I can go to the movies, or more likely now, rented on Netflix. Um, you know, I will watch a rom com, and it's a, it's pretty much going to be boy meets girl, boy loses girl, boy finds girl again, right? And so we go through this whole system, you know, this whole tired trope. And, um, but it's fun, but I can look at them and I can see the man and the woman and they're falling in love. And I make that translation for myself because I recognize they are two human beings who are falling in love. Right. And so I can get out of that experience what it was intended for you know which is to portray this love story even though i'm not seeing myself represented on the screen i'm seeing a man and a woman um rarely would i see a a gay person even as a supporting character obviously that's happening more and more now but it's still not at the level where we should be but you know hey gotta start somewhere (laughs) um but Now, with the Seder's Kiss, I'd like to think that that's kind of turned on its head. So if a straight person is is reading the Satyr's Kiss, they're not going to see their heterosexual relationships reaffirmed and and represented because that's the larger society does that all the time for them anyway. This is for us. This is our opportunity to explore our stories and, and to see what our magic is. And so if a straight person is reading that, they can still get things out of it, but now they're the ones that have to translate. You know, they're going to have to look and see, oh, yes, you know, Dionysus, you know, have this queer sexual encounter, but what can I get out of it? Even though I'm, you know, in this scenario, I'm not queer, right? Um, so it can teach them how to make those translations to make something useful for you, even if it wasn't intended for you. And that's a particular skill set that queer people have had to do for millennia. Because society was not set up for us. Again, it's only been in recent memory that we've even had characters in movies, you know, with the exception of, you know, when they used to portray us as just you know, sick individuals or serial killers, or at best, we were the tragic dying figure. Um, now we see more characters that are positive or main characters and, and whatnot. And you will, I'm sure you understand, you know, there, there's a lot of backlash against that. I'm always seeing things on social media about people are so mad, you know, that there's all these queer characters and they feel that it's, it's just political and, you know, blah, blah. it's, you know, liberal values being shoved down our throat. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, it's amazing to me because, and this is as much political as I want to get today, but um, (laughs) it's amazing to me because people will look at that and, and assume that the inclusion of queer characters automatically equates to politics but they don't have any inkling that the exclusion of queer characters has been a political one you know in fact that's even more political because queer people exist we're everywhere in all walks of life in every religion in every state in every country we exist and excluding us is a political decision including us is simply being true to reality
1: its existence it's not politics it's not about yeah. this versus that it's about the acknowledging the existence of fellow human beings it's not about trying to shove values down uh, society's throat it's us wanting to be seen and wanting to be noted yeah we should have the same um rights as everybody else
0: Harvey Fierstein had said, I forget, he was like on a talk show many years ago. For those who don't know, Harvey Fierstein, great actor, singer, he um, wrote a play and then starred in the movie, The Torch Song Trilogy. It was one of the first queer films that I ever, ever saw. And uh, also starred Matthew Broderick, a young and beautiful Matthew Broderick. Um, <laughs> rent it right away. Harvey Fierstein said that it doesn't often happen. We, we want the right to be just as boring as heterosexuals are. And I just thought that was so delightful. He says, it doesn't all often happen, you know, but we, we want the right to be just as boring as heterosexuals. And this isn't a slam against um, my heterosexual friends. I have many heterosexual friends, you know, but um, but the idea that the, the tongue in cheek idea behind it is that, you know, we, we just want to have the right to exist and and to to see ourselves represented in our culture around us, because we're here, we're part of culture. We have certainly contributed to the advancement of culture, Um, but politically we're often excluded, you know, um, our stories aren't included or or people will say, oh yeah, well, so-and-so may have contributed, but we don't need to mention that they're gay, right? And so it becomes this queer erasure, you know, that happens. You know, example, Alan Turing, who was instrumental in breaking Nazi codes, you know, during World War II. Later, even when he was honored, people would often leave out the fact that he was gay, even though he basically he was ruined because of it. You know, he was stripped of his job. He died in um, kind of societal shame because he was outed and it was illegal. People often forget that it used to literally be illegal to be gay you know, not even necessarily to act on it. It wasn't just the crime of gay sex. If you were a gay person, that was illegal, you know, and in some countries it still is, you know, um, sometimes it carries the death penalty, you know, so these are things that are happening right now. And don't think that we're safe just because we're in the United States. There are things happening all the time that are trying to you know, eat away at our protections, you know, and we even just saw something like that today in our Supreme Court. So I said I wasn't going to get political, but here I go. So I'm going to rein back. I'm going to rein back. But um Applying. But yeah, so I'm hoping I'm hoping that people outside of the queer male community will also still get something out of the satyrs kiss. And again, if nothing else, then perhaps just an opportunity to see what it feels like to have to make those internal translations in order to make something relevant for us right and i do think that that's a valuable lesson and one that straight people don't often get because 99.9 percent of our culture is specifically tailored toward cisgender heterosexual
1: people so when can we expect this book to be on the shelf? this is like another opportunity for a shameless plug i promise you. <laughs> plenty of opportunities
0: um, so yeah, so the Seder's Kiss is scheduled for a May 2022 release date. So I'm I'm very excited about that. Yeah, I um, yeah again, this was the first book that I ever wanted to write. I'm excited. I'm a little nervous because it is a little racy. You know, it talks about sex magic. You know, I talk very explicitly. Um, hopefully not. I don't th- I don't think I did it in a crass way. You know, but in some places it's rather explicit. Because I didn't want to shy away, I, I, I want to I didn't want to blur the edges. I didn't want to like be demure about the whole thing. You know, I wanted to be practical and straightforward. Um, so yeah, I'm very excited. Um, so May eight, I think, is when it is. May eight, 2022.
1: You can actually pre-order it in some places. Like I was yeah on, and you can actually uh, pre-order it.
0: Yeah, yeah, Amazon is doing pre-orders for it now. I guess they do their price guarantee because I don't know. I guess the price could change if you order it now, and then the price changes later. You won't be charged more, which is always a nice thing. Um, I do believe that you can pre-order it on Llewellyn's website as well. Yeah, honestly, I should have checked that before we got on today, and I did not, so I don't know. But you could check it out at um, Llewellyn.com and see. But I know on Amazon, it's it's. Um, being offered as pre-order, as well as my other new book, which will be coming out a couple months earlier, and that is The Witch's Name. I am actually really excited about that one. I I mean, I'm excited about both, right?
1: And for different reasons. They're I'm, both really personal to me. But it's so like, I, were, a, I went through a name change recently, as you know. Right. With revelations of my life, like about my life and about who I am as a person. So whenever I heard you were coming out, coming out with a book about magical names and stuff that's very relevant to me. I it actually jumped up the list like one above Seder's Kiss. I'm just gonna be honest.
0: Oh nice. Thank you. Yeah, it um again it is a really personal story. I, I, I actually do talk about my journey, you know, of of self-naming and and how I never identified with my birth name. Um and I always knew that my name was my real name was different on this particular book um, it's not just a dictionary of names although i do have a lot of name suggestions throughout the text but it's not really a dictionary it's not really like oh here choose this or choose that it's more points of inspiration it's trying to inspire people to look beyond what's right in front of them to look at numerous sources that could inform you know, what a magical name might be. Um, But it's also the recognition that the magical name is a spell that we are casting upon ourselves for our own self-fulfillment, our own transformation. And so aspects of our magical name might be aspirational, you know, might be something that, you know, we wish to incorporate some type of energy, a strength, a talent, a behavior that we wish we had more of. You know we might encourage that energy into our lives through the use of a magical name Um, it could also be something that is simply affirming you know something that we already are or a point of remembrance if we had a particular um, life passage or event in our life that was particularly meaningful we might adopt that as part of our name um, in order to kind of keep that energy in our in our consciousness and so I talk about how it's really about creating the magical persona. And so I give a pretty robust practice on how one might go about determining how to choose a magical name and what name elements you know one might use and where is this appropriate. And, and also the concepts of which, which names might be public and what other things might be private. You know, there's so many different approaches to a magical name. For example, everybody pretty much knows my name, Storm Fairy Wolf, is my magical name, but it's also the name that I use in my day-to-day mundane life. You know, that's what they know me as when I go to the post office or I go to the grocery store. You know, everything is Storm. I did that specifically because I knew that I wanted to be a public warlock and I was making myself available as a resource. And this reminds me every single day that my job is to, to some degree, to stand outside of quote unquote normal society. You know, a- as normal as I can be, you know, I mean, I, I, other people might look, look at my life and think, oh my God, it's radical and weird. And, you know, he's a gay, polyamorous male and in, in a group relationship and he's a public warlock and, you know, um, That's how he makes his living and, you know, all these weird things. But I feel that I'm fairly normal. You know, I watch Netflix and, you know, I'm into Star Trek and, you know, other things that are considered to be, you know, quote, unquote, mundane, you know, whatever. Um, But focusing on that name reminds me that even in the midst of my mundane existence, that my goal is to live a spiritual life, a magical life. And so but I have other names, you know, I've been initiated into different magical groups and different traditions, and it's customary in many of those groups to take on a name that is specific for that tradition. And so I do have other magical names that I will use in different traditions. I also have a magical name that is known only to me and to the spirits with whom I work. And and they each hold a different place you know, in, in my heart. And so I talk about that as well, you know, the different types of magical names and and how one might go about claiming it. I have um, some rituals that I wrote to help people claim a magical name once you've actually decided on it in order to kind of um, more deeply plant that energetic and psychic seed, you know, to allow it to grow into um, a persona of power. Because it, it's to me, it's, it's much the same as. If we're working in a particular group and perhaps everybody has, you know, in, in this group, we'll, we'll say everybody has a particular robe mm. that they might wear or there's a particular maybe you wear a particular necklace. And when you put that necklace on, it shifts your consciousness or you put that robe on and it shifts your consciousness. You're no longer, you know, a mundane um, worker. You know, you're no, you know, you are now a, you're entering into your magical headspace. And that's really what the witch's name is about. You know, how do we create this magical persona? You know, how do we then use magic as a trigger to bring us in to a deep magical space in which we can more deeply touch our power? And I think that a a magical name for a witch is one of the most powerful tools we could ever wield because it speaks to us so directly. It's so personal and it allows us to kind of, at least temporarily to throw off the the shackles, the chains of unexamined consumerism, you know, and and move into a space in which we feel our, our power and our deep magic And it's really about that feeling, you know, we, we have to shift our perception.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Um, That's to me, that's the core of magic. We shift our perception and in using a specific name for magical purposes is a great and easy way to do just that.
1: Awesome. Well, I'm super excited. You've just been very busy. You're just cranking out books like left and right. I hope
0: so. That's how I, that's how I live now. So
1: <laughs> I,
0: and I'm, I'm addicted to this eating thing. So I'm hoping, I'm hoping that people will, will like them and, and buy the books. Um, I do have some ideas. I'm not going to reveal them yet, but I have some ideas for some other stuff, of course, already. So um, I'm giving myself a little break before I get um, contracted, you know, for another book, but I do have some other ideas. So there'll be some other stuff on the horizons as well, but I'm really looking forward to these two books. So March, Uh, March 2022 is The Witch's Name, and May 2022 is The Seder's Kiss.
1: That's going to be awesome. Well, thanks for taking us on a ride today. It was certainly very informative, and I've like doodled down so many notes here in my little composition. (laughs) It was a pleasure. It was a lot of information to take in, but we need information in this day and age in a time when information is either not true or scarce altogether. Well, I
0: appreciate you giving me the opportunity, Aaron, to, to talk about this. Um, that's what I love to do, and so thank you very much. I had a great time.
1: righty, and again, this was Storm Fairy Wolf. He has two books coming out. He just said he has one coming out in May, which is The Sater's Kiss, and March, which is The Witch's Name. I recommend picking up any book that you can find by Storm Fairy Wolf because it is going to be jam-packed with information. He is one of the boldest people that I know and an inspiration to myself and my path. And against Storm, I appreciate you for taking the time to talk to us today. And I will talk to you real soon. Thank you so much. It was my pleasure.